Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining me for another Pain Talk podcast. Today, we're going to really dig deep into chronic pain. And if you take anything away from this podcast, what I want you to take away is that you need to recognize that chronic pain is a unique condition that requires a unique approach. And what I mean by that is that it's a very, very specific illness that requires a very specific approach. Just when you think about uh, another analogy there would be something like Crohn's disease. When someone comes in with Crohn's disease, we have a very specific approach. We can look at the prevention of Crohn's disease. We can look at the management of Crohn's disease. And we can look at the chronic disease part of that as well. So the same thing happens with chronic pain. It's a very unique condition that requires a unique approach. So where this can get really confusing and why thinking about it in this way can be very helpful is that often we're seeing patients with multiple potentially painful conditions um, who are also living with persistent pain. Not everybody who has multiple medical conditions that have potential for pain live with persistent pain. So I think it's an important distinction. So a great idea or a great recognition around this would be somebody who has Crohn's disease, we'll come back to Crohn's disease, who also has degenerative disc disease or degenerative arthritis, who also may be a diabetic, who's also living with persistent pain. So what I like to do for patients is to ask them that really difficult question, what do you think are the conditions or the factors that are driving this pain for you? And I get them to tell me what they have learned through their pain journey, what are those conditions? So that condition might be, they might tell me that condition is because I have degenerative disc disease or I have disc bulging. Those are really important things to list for those patients, even though our understanding of those conditions is that they don't drive the chronic pain, but they are important in terms of how patients frame what is actually happening to them. By doing this, I really feel that what we can do is help hopefully give patients more hope around this condition and that we can get them off that acute pain treadmill Uh, so that they can start focusing in on the persistence of their pain and the mechanism that's contributing to this. So we also need to recognize that any painful condition can lead to pain chronification or to chronic pain. The most common conditions that we see are usually injuries or acute pain that are related to significant trauma, uh, low back pain, and osteoarthritis are the most common conditions. When a patient receives a diagnosis of chronic pain, it really is a life-changing diagnosis. It's the same idea when somebody gets the diagnosis of insulin-dependent diabetes. From that point on, especially when that patient has to bring insulin into the equation, they have to manage their day differently. They have to manage their life differently. They have to get proper sleep. They have to have more structure and routine around how they eat. Uh, They have to manage their pharmaceuticals in a proper way in order to keep that disease under control. So chronic pain is a life-changing diagnosis that requires a huge shift in how people live their life day to day, which is really hard. That's why some patients are not ready to make those changes. Um, And uh, I have a really good saying that I often use, like when we're really trying to change behavior around a particular condition, is that the knowledge that we have does provide possibility. And this actually came from a podcast that I listened to by Jim Quick. I think it's a great podcast uh, to look at changing harmful behavior. And the quote goes like this, knowledge is possibility. It only has power if we use it. So what I'm going to do and bring in the, the change, changing behavior aspect of this is that knowledge is possibility. It only has power if the patient is ready to use it. 
So this is where motivational interviewing can come in. What is their readiness to change? And this is where the principles of harm reduction. Harm reduction are really those uh, principles and processes that we use that try to keep our community and our patients safe uh, until they're ready to make those changes that they need to find that quality of life that is going to give them connection and purpose. Remember what Virginia said in the podcast that we used to interview her previously, that if patients and healthcare providers can make that shift to a chronic pain mindset, their life will become so much easier to manage. And believe it or not, uh, when we make that shift, we also find that uh, how we help patients manage this illness also gets a little bit better. So I just want to clarify uh, the vocabulary and the terminology that we're using in the chronic pain uh, podcast today. So this is a, it's important that we're all talking the same language because there is a lot of terminology out there uh, to explain uh, chronic pain. Um, such names as chronic pain, persistent pain, pain chronification, chronic non-cancer pain. So there's a really good article that I'm going to post on the webpage uh, that everyone should read. It's by Bart Morlon and his group. It was a group of experts that uh, came together to look at uh, how we could standardize terminology around uh, pain literature. And it's entitled Pain Chronification, What Should a Non-Pain Medicine Specialist Know? And it's in the current uh, medicine research opinion in 2018. So I will post that so people can have a look at that. What they tried to do in this particular group setting and when they brought this very smart group of uh, specialists together is to answer some of these very important questions. And what they wanted to do is to standardize that language and also give uh, uh, non-pain specialists and primary care physicians a narrative overview of pain chronification. So they wanted to look at uh, summarizing what we know and what we uh, need to do to move forward in this very complex condition. So pain chronification describes the process of transient acute pain progressing into persistent pain or chronic pain. So that pain processing changes occur because of an imbalance between how pain is amplified and how pain is blocked within the central nervous system. And there are multiple factors that come into play that influence in that. So it can be genetic factors, environmental factors. There can be psychological factors that often determine the risk of a patient developing this condition, how intense it's going to be, and the time course of chronification. Besides the terminology, they wanted to highlight some unique aspects of chronic pain that they felt all of us should know. They wanted us to understand the physiology and the psychosocial processes that were involved. What were the predictive factors? So who was at risk of developing pain chronification? And they also wanted to, to develop a brief summary of some preventative strategies that we could use to minimize that risk and to look at the role of uh, primary care physicians and non-pain specialists could play in the holistic management of chronic pain. So a really important article. So let's just look at some facts around chronic pain. So one in five Canadians live with chronic pain. That number increases in populations such as seniors, where we see about a one in four risk. Also in our military and first responders, as well as Indigenous populations, the risk actually increases to one in three. So overall, chronic pain has a negative impact on the quality of life of individuals. So it contributes to considerable psychosocial impairment, some work disability, and in fact, it costs our healthcare uh, system a lot of money. So in Canada, we spend probably about $6 billion per year on direct health care costs caring for patients living with chronic pain. If we tie in job loss and sick days, we're looking at about $37 billion per year. In the European Union, they spend about 3 to 10% of their GDP on the management of chronic pain. So if you think about this, this is more than cancer, heart disease, and HIV combined. 
So this is a huge cost to our healthcare system. If we look at how chronic pain develops, um, and we need to come back to what, what the definition is of chronic pain or pain chronification, and we're going to use the International Association for the Study of Pain, is that chronic pain is pain without apparent biological value that has persisted beyond the normal tissue healing. So we're looking primarily at pain that has persisted along three, longer than three months. Acute pain is the normal predicted physiological response to an adverse chemical, thermal, or mechanical stimulus. So there's a very distinct difference. So acute pain is more about the tissue. Uh, It's more about those nociceptive circuits. A chronic pain is more about uh, the central nervous system, although there are some peripheral aspects that come into this as well. So they have two very different mechanisms, two very different uh, pathophysiology that we need to understand. So that normal pain pathway we can think of two major circuits there. We can think of the nociceptive circuits that happen in the peripheral system. So pain is coming in through the dorsal root ganglia, going to the dorsal root horn, up into the brain, and then up through the ascending pathway, down through the descending pathway. These other circuits are in the higher learning circuits. So this is what brings the complex emotions, that survival response that we have, because pain is essential for survival. It's also what disrupts the sleep. So these higher learning circuits and then these peripheral nociceptive circuits. So chronic pain is felt to arise, as we mentioned, from an imbalance between that ascending pathway becomes amplified, and then there's an adequate activation of the descending inhibitory pathway. What seems to be contributing to this is actually uh, some non-neuronal cell uh, dysregulation, primarily around the glial cells and the mast cells. So what they do is normally they have this ability to maintain homeostasis in around the threat that comes in uh, to the nervous system from the, uh, the, the, um, the noxious stimulus that is triggering this. So these glial cells normally maintain that homeostasis, but when they become dysregulated, they actually increase neuroinflammation, which also increases central sensitization, which we'll talk about uh, in another podcast. Part of the transition to pain, chronic pain or pain chronification, are these things called chronic pain flare-ups. We don't talk a lot about chronic pain flare-ups, but we need to talk more about chronic pain flare-ups. And they're really hard to distinguish from acute pain, but they're often confused with acute pain. So what they are is that they often occur in patients who are living with persistent pain, so patients who have this uh, central sensitization. And what happens is that patients who are living with chronic pain or persistent pain have a normal baseline pain, so they're never at zero. And what happens is they get these intense increases in their daily intensity of pain that can last hours to days, and what they'll do is come back to their baseline. When you examine those patients, and if if you decide to make a decision to work them up, what you'll find is that there's no new condition that you find, or there's no new progression of a pre-existing condition. So if there's somebody with Crohn's disease, their Crohn's disease is very stable. There's nothing indicating that their Crohn's disease has become active or has become acutely uh, reactive. So those are chronic pain flare-ups. And why it's important to recognize those is that our goals of care change considerably when we're managing somebody with acute pain versus somebody that we're managing with chronic pain. So a lot of the, the therapies and the interventions that I do for acute pain often are not going to be that helpful for chronic pain patients. So I need to be able to make that distinguish, distinction between acute pain and chronic pain and also to recognize that these chronic pain flare-ups are pretty intense. What starts to happen with, the, uh, with pain chronification, patients start to experience these intense flare-ups. 
and they're trying everything they can. They're, they're get, getting instructions from healthcare providers that they should walk more, they should do more, uh, that they need to just kind of get over it. They have to learn to live with it. And they're going to do all those suggestions that we're, we, we give them. And in fact, uh, Virginia talked about that, that she was trying everything she could, but everything she tried to do seemed to make the pain worse. Those, those are actually called chronic pain flare-ups. And in some ways, the nervous system is still trying to protect the patient, but it's kind of lost the proper information. So what's happening is that the neuroinflammation, so those glial cell dysregulation, um, has started to drive some of this neuroinflammation, which actually is putting the, the nervous system in a state of alarm. So the body feels that there's something dangerous and bad happening, even though there's nothing dangerous or bad that you can measure in a blood test or that you can see in an investigation. So what starts to drive this is the amplification uh, or the neuroinflammation and the central sensitization. So it's a very chaotic, very confusing time for patients. till they get to a point where they start to get into what we call a chronic pain spiral. So a chronic pain spiral is where that patient is trying all these things, but what starts to happen is that no matter what they do, things seem to get worse. So they start to limit their activities. And when they do that, they start to get very weak and tight muscles. They start to become more deconditioned. They start to isolate them some from their friends, from their family. They don't really want to go out anymore because they're not sure how they're going to feel, if they're going to get another flare-up. They start to feel like they're losing control. And this is where the stigma starts to come in and people start to feel more and more depressed. And then they get into what we call a pain-centered life. So pain-centered life is where pain is deciding everything. What they eat that day, if they go out that day, if they interact with anyone that day. And what we try and do in the pain self-management program is get them to a function-centered life. So this is where we try and look at the pharmacology or look at the techniques that they're using. So I think of these as, as resiliency techniques and vulnerability techniques. So what, what's working, what's not working in around the chronic pain context, not the acute pain, but the chronic pain context. So we want to review some of those with them and also give them the kind of education and knowledge that they need. So pain self-management programs are really good for that. So what we're trying to do is we're going to increase their activity. So we're going to shift them from a pain focus to a function focus. But you have to approach activity very, very carefully. So this is where the pacing comes in. So a great example of pacing and trying to get somebody moving would be, you know, I'd start out with a conversation. Tell me what your pain intensity is today as you're standing here. So it's five on 10. How far can you walk before that pain goes up to six or seven? They might say three minutes. They might say five minutes. I'll get them to cut that time in half. And what I'll get them to do is, is, is maybe, because you want them to do an amount of time that they can do in a good pain day and a bad pain day. They can't let pain decide how they do the activity. Even though what they feel is real, it's not really an accurate reflection as to what's going on in their tissue. So what we'll get them to do is we'll get them to, to pick two, two times during the day. They're going to walk for two minutes, flat surface. They're just going to kind of get themselves moving a bit. And if they can do that for three or four days without an intense flare-up, then we get them to, if it's under 10 minutes, we usually get them to start to add in 30 seconds. So what they start to do is they have this gradual progression in activity. And uh, hopefully what starts to happen is that the neuroplasticity or the changes that are happening in the alarm system start to kind of move backwards. So just like the pain system can amplify, it can actually de-amplify. So this gives patients some hope. And pacing can be a really important way of doing that. So factors that increase their chronic pain flare-ups are multiple, and activity by far is one of the biggest ones. We just talked about that. So when we tell our patients to go out and walk 15 minutes twice a day, they're going to do that, but they're going to have intense flare-ups. So the activity that we're going to teach them is going to be very purposeful. It's going to be very planned. 
Um, they're going to pick a time of the day, probably the day before, already the brain is saying, okay, there's some predictability. Because right now, there is no predictability of how their days are going to feel or what the ne- next days are going to feel. So just planning a little bit around the activity actually gives the brain a sense of predictability. How a patient thinks and feels has an impact as well. So giving them back some control can make a big difference. There are some medications that we use, including opioids, that can actually contribute to these pain flare-ups as well, primarily through withdrawal. So especially if the patient has a focus on short-acting opiates. What often happens is that short-acting opiates starts to drive the poor sleep and the pain, unless we sit down with patients and help them recognize that. So those are just a few other things, but it is a pain self-management programs are really important in the context of how we help patients manage and live with this very complex condition. So other things that we want to ask ourselves is why does chronic pain happen? And more importantly, how can we shut it off? Or even better, how can we prevent it from happening? Are there some patients that are more at risk than others? So one way to explore risk factors around the development of chronic pain is to look at what are the vulnerabilities that patients have and what are the resiliency factors that patient has. And so we can take that information sometimes and use that in the clinical setting. So I always think about probably about five different categories that we can use to identify that. So there can be categories around the patient's demographics. So these are the genetics and the biology of patients. So we know that gender with women, females are more, more at risk. And this has to do with a neuroendocrine factor that comes into the neurobiology. We know that there are some genetic predispositions to chronic pain. We know that patients that are older are more prone to get persistent pain. There can also be characteristics around the acute pain presentation. So this is the intensity of patient, what patients are experiencing, the severity, how we acknowledge that severity can be really important, and whether or not they get repeat trauma. So if you have patient who's gone through a significant trauma from a motor vehicle collision, say, and then undergoes multiple procedures that are very uh, traumatic for them, that can be a huge predictor as to whether or not that patient might develop an amplification syndrome. There can be psychosocial factors as well. Uh, So if that patient is already coming from a place of fear, so they have a very high baseline fear, a fear that whatever is happening is not going to go away, or a fear that they could die from this particular condition, that is really important. If they have an underlying baseline of anxiety, if they think about the worst case scenario, they have, believe it or not, seven times the risk factor of someone who doesn't think worst case scenario. So it's really important for us to be able to address that. Do they have coping strategies already that they bring to the table for that acute pain experience? So what are the habits and behaviors that they've developed through their lifetime to help manage this? Um, And do they have a sense of uh, purpose and, and uh, uh, a recognition that they need to develop better uh, strategies to manage this. There can also be psychosocial factors related to perceived injustice around workman's compensation and third-party disability. So there's this stress litigation that can happen as well. There can be some drug factors. So we know that opioids can contribute to chronic pain. There are some immunotherapies that we're using now for chemotherapy and cancer. So here you have a traumatic diagnosis of a cancer, and then we use something like immunotherapy that sometimes can increase the risk of that patient developing chronic pain. So it's really important that we have that conversation with patient and a strategy on how we're going to manage that. Um, There are some HIV meds as well that can also um, contribute to this. So the clinical factors are really what we can control. So we need to make sure that we're validating that pain experience for the patient We're also trying to build some capacity with that patient to understand the pain and not to be afraid of the pain, to recognize that this is how our body protects us 
This is how our body tells us when something's wrong. And this is how our body uh, protects tissue until it heals. There can be some environmental factors that the patient brings to the, to the table, and this is their life experience or their life story. So if they grew up in a very chaotic, unpredictable home environment, they are going to develop habits and behaviors that are going to help them find calm that may not be helping them later on in life. And I'm using an example of maybe what they would use is, uh, you know, to have a drink or something when they're a little bit older to kind of find that place of calm or uh, that they would keep things inside. They're not somebody that would really discuss some of the stresses or the fears that they have. The kinds of support systems that they have within the home environment can be very important. Uh, Other factors in the environment can be their satisfaction with work um, and how comfortable they feel communicating with healthcare providers. Their level of education can be a factor as well. And if they have significant health issues, those are things that can all impact how they uh, can develop persistent pain and how they can respond to pain. Some of the factors that, uh, that we've identified is that you know, being able to develop, because uh, there's so many opportunities for us to help patients manage pain, so giving them some capacity when they do experience pain, but also to minimize their risk of developing chronic pain. So how we help them manage an acute pain uh, episode, which we like to think of sometimes as that first hit, can be really important in terms of how they move on uh, and what they, how they respond to uh, another experience. So we know that in the early stages of acute pain, those, that cumulative trauma, higher levels of depression, early belief that pain will be permanent all contribute to uh, increased severity of pain and disability. And this was some of the research that was done by Young and colleagues in 2008. So we need to give patients lots of hope and very factual information. So that two-hit hypothesis that we talked about earlier, I think, is really helpful because we can identify patients at risk. So to minimize that first hit, which primes the nervous system, causes that glial cell dysregulation, causes that neuroinflammation, that central sensitization, so when they get exposed the second time, that they're not going to get that persistent pain. So the second hit is really that disruptive pain experience where pain becomes persistent. So I I love this little technique that I use, and and we're going to clue this up here pretty soon uh, because it is getting a little bit long. But I I, I like to think of promoting a safe ED approach to acute pain. And I'm looking at that uh, environment that I work in, which is the emergency department. So reducing the risk of chronic pain and substance use disorders. So the most important thing that we need to do initially is make them feel safe and believed. So whatever we do, regardless of that experience, is that we have to tell the patient we believe them, that this experience is unique to them, and this is something that is real to them. So make them feel safe and believed. We want to calm worst-case scenario thinking, and we want to address pain-specific fears, both present and future. So you're trying to give them some hope. You're trying to give them some sense of control. You then want to examine them carefully for any new pathology or progression of a pre-existing disease. And you also want to manage treatment expectations. So the goal of medication is not to take their pain away. So this is where we need to bring the the reality that pain is there for a purpose. And we're talking acute pain here. Chronic pain is a little bit different, but acute pain has purpose. So we need to get them to understand that we're not trying to take that away, but we do want them moving. We want to get them active and functional. We want to let them know that this will get better. And if you make a decision around high-risk pharmaceuticals, you want to dispense small quantities of pharmaceuticals over a short period of time. So we're kind of probably stop there for now, um, and we're going to get into some of the forces. So we know that that first hit, second hit, 
So the factors that increase the risk of chronic pain for patient. But then what we want to do when the patient develops persistent pain or chronic pain or pain chronification has happened, we want to look at those forces that drive the chronicity of chronic pain. So there are five that I'll just briefly mention, and we'll dig into those in the next podcast. One is neuroinflammation. So this is where glial cells and mast cells become dysregulated in the central nervous system. The second thing is central sensitization or pain amplification. The third thing is the messenger. So this is where the higher learning circuits are taking over. These are brain-based circuits that start to take over from the nociceptive or tissue-based regulation circuits. The fourth thing are these pain-protective behaviors that patients can get into. And this is where I look at muscle memory and movement memory. And the fifth thing is to look at the patient's life story or experience and how they impact how the patient is living and managing that pain. So this is where the habits and behaviors that patients have used in the past that have got them through life but are probably not helping them when they've developed persistent pain. So we'll stop there and uh, hope to talk to you again next week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.